Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben, and in this episode of the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast, we're welcoming back our resident expert in agricultural science. Hey family, hope you're well wherever you are and you got that thin blue smoke rolling. This is episode 128 of the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast. And as I said at the top, we're welcoming back Tom Damon, our resident ag science specialist. But before we get into that, I've got a couple of announcements that I want, that I want to run by you first. The first is the latest review is now up on the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue website. So we have the Grill Gun Review from Grill Blazer. It is a hell of a lot of fun. I've had an absolute ball using it. There's a video there. There's a bit of a bit of a write-up on it as well. Make sure you check that out. And if you do decide to click on through and get one of your own, make sure you use the word confessions at checkout and you'll save 10% off your very own grill gun. Second, if you're not there already, do come join us at the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Community on Facebook. It's the nicest, most friendly group on Facebook. Um, it's open to everybody. We, we welcome everybody from all countries and all different backgrounds and all the BS is left at the door. We just talk about barbecue and it's a really good time, really good place to hang out. So do come over and join us, Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Community on Facebook. And thirdly, I just want to throw, throw a big shout out and a thank you to this episode's sponsor, Meat and Fire Media Services. They've come on board to, uh, to sponsor this episode. They've got a course out at the moment, Brand Building Through Strategic Social Media Marketing. It's a really top course. It's going to help all the barbecue businesses out there that are looking to build their brand in a social media space. And if you use the code word podcast at checkout, you're going to save 100 bucks off that course. Now, today's app, we are welcoming back Tom Damon. Now, we did speak to him last in episode 109, and we got into the, into the background of the beef industry, which was really fascinating. We also got Tom's origin story in barbecue there as well. So we're not going to get into, uh, into his origin story in this episode again. We're just going to jump straight into it. We're going to be talking about um, Tom's latest news. He's got some exciting things that have been happening and we're going to get another healthy dose of barbecue related ag science. So we're going to be talking about lamb, pork and chicken today, which is going to be really cool stuff. So without further ado, I think it's time to get Tom in here. This is the internationally awarded Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast with your host, Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Alrighty, Tom, welcome to the confessional, my friend. It is good to have you back. G'day, Ben. Good to see you again, buddy. You too, mate. You too. You're looking, uh, you're looking like your plants are growing well there behind you. Oh, yeah. No, it's springtime. Everything looks good this time of the year. <laughs> that, that virtual background just looks amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now, since we last spoke, your rubs have launched and man, they are everywhere. Um, there was a brand new barbecue shop just opened up here on the Gold Coast. I went and visited two weeks ago and there's a whole like two shelves of your stuff in there. So how, how's that, um, that experience been for you? Uh, mate, it's absolutely going fantastic. And, you know, the support we've had from people, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of Australian made rubs uh, out there now. It seems to be on the, on the increase, but the demand for Australian made rubs is really uh, skyrocketing at the moment. People are just getting behind, you know, these local brands and, um, you know, we've, we've sort of got a bit of a coordinated um, effort with us and uh, the, all the brands under the, the Stag and Co banner. So you interviewed Scotty a few weeks back, but you know, with us and Butcher's Axe and the Suck Knuckle guys, um, 
you know, people can sort of deal with one supplier and um, get access to all those. And, you know, we've also got a bit of a different product in the, um, our bacon dry cure. So, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just blown me away actually uh, how, how positive the whole uptake's been. Yeah. I, I have noticed actually, now that you mentioned the, um, the, the, the stag and co stable of, of rub manufacturers, you all seem to be really supportive of each other as well. So like I've seen Butcher's Axe sharing your posts and sharing Suck Knuckles posts and, and all vice versa in that little family there. Is that, is that a particular strategy that you guys have agreed upon or is it just something that sort of happened organically? Oh, it's just happened organically, Ben. Like we've um, uh, just all gotten to know each other through the mutual connection of, of Stag and Co. Uh, and we all just seem to get along really well. I mean, I, I'd, met the Axe boys, uh, at, at a couple of comps, but didn't know them all that well. Uh, Craig at Suck Knuckle, I've, I've, you know, he was at my first ever barbecue comp. I've known him for a while now, but yeah, I just think we all like what each other's doing. Um, you know, Scott's also done a pretty good job of sort of stewarding us to, um, forging our own path a little bit. So they're all, they're all quite different products. You know, the Axe boys are really, uh, competition sort of focused with their flavors and, we're sort of going for a bit more for, you know, home cooks and, and something a little bit different. And then, you know, suck knuckle there, um, knuckle duster, you know, that's a totally different type of product. Again, it's a barbecue rub, but it's a fry seasoning and a, you know, fried chicken seasoning. So, you know, I, I think, I think we're all keeping it a little bit different and um, I think we all just like what, what each other's doing. So it makes it pretty easy to throw a plug, you know? Yeah. It, it reminds me of that scene out of, um, is it a beautiful mind where Russell Crowe is talking to his group of, uh, of scholarly friends and he's, and they're out trying to hit on the girls in the bar and they, they come up with a strategy where they're all working together, but still in competition and they, <laughs> and they find that really nice balance. And, um, I, I, I love it when I see that happening in, in real life. Yeah. I think, I think it's just the bro code, mate. We just got to look after each other. We're all, we're all barbecue bros at the end of the day. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now you mentioned your your bacon rub, and you you sent me through a bottle of that, which is look it looks absolutely amazing. I haven't had a chance to use it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. And making bacon at home seems to be getting more and more popular. Why why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think it's partly to do with how much time people are spending at home, um, because because the only really reason why you don't make bacon at home is because it just takes a bit more time. You know, historically, it's been a lot easier just to buy it from the supermarket. But, you know, like a lot of this craft, um, you know, whether it's craft beers or craft food making or uh, or hobbies and, and that sort of stuff, a lot of the old, you know, traditional practices that we did at home are, are coming back to the forefront. You know, they're sort of coming trendy again. People are appreciating the um, putting in the effort, but for the extra reward instead of just like a processed mass produced society. Um, so yeah, I just think, I think as well, like, um, with the barbecue revolution sort of coming along, um, the missing ingredient with making, a, making bacon is, is generally the smoker. So, you know, bacon is gen is, um, you know, classified as bacon. If it's basically, if it's only, if it's smoked. So missing ingredient for most people for a long time was, was having a smoker, but now with the popularity of barbecue, um, Heaps of people have got smoke access to smokers now. So yeah, I guess it's just evolving nicely. Yeah, it, it definitely seems to be on the um on the up and up here in Australia. My my neighbor just today actually, um, I've I've lived here for five years and when we first moved in, he saw me moving all my barbecues in. 
And so we had a conversation over the fence about barbecue. And he said, oh, yeah, I've, I've just got a gas barbecue, blah, blah, blah. And any time I've lit up the charcoal, they go around, they shut all their windows and all this sort of stuff. And I just, <laughs> I just spotted on his front deck today a vintage green Weber kettle. There so you go, uh, mate. it's 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 taken five years, but just the smell of my food over the fence—it's won yeah. him over, and he's he's got a, got himself a vintage kettle. Oh, it's infectious, mate. Yeah, yeah, no, good. <laughs> yeah, team charcoal. Let's let's hear one for us. Yeah, yeah. Now I I love making bacon at home. It's it's one of my favorite things to do. My my son actually really loves getting involved because he um he loves eating it, so he loves making it as well. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about your about your bacon rub and and how it works and the different flavor profiles you've gone for and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I guess um, the reason why we decided to uh, bring to market a, a bacon dry cure, so it's designed for dry curing bacon, so that's not a brining process. We, we basically rub it with the, the dry cure mix, put it in a bag, uh, whether that's a vac seal bag or a a snap lock bag. It doesn't really matter as long as it's kind of airtight. Um, and effectively the, the, uh, the salt, the sugar, uh, the, um, the curing, uh, salt and, and other bits and pieces do their job over about five or six days, sort of depending on the weight of the meat. Um, and then at that point, the, um, the bacon's cured. Now, uh, generally we recommend going through a hot smoking process, uh, to finish the, um, uh, the food safetyness and and to finish the curing and drying process. Uh, you can cold smoke with our cure, but cold smoking takes a lot longer. It's done at lower temperatures and it's based on a drying percentage. Whereas uh, hot smoking, you're actually pasteurizing the meat by getting it to 145 Fahrenheit internal. So it's just a bit easier to do at home than cold smoking. You kind of need a bit of a setup and, you know, a spare 36 hours to do a proper cold smoke. So um yeah, so that's we recommend hot smoking it, and then, you know, once you've gone through that process, you've you've got bacon. Um, we looked at other uh, ready to go dry cures on the market um, after I'd used a fair few of them myself, and I just saw a little bit of a market gap. Um, there's some really good value cures that have the bare minimums like salt, sugar, uh, curing powder, and then just a tiny bit of flavour. But what you end up with is not a very balanced uh, flavor product. Mm-hmm. So you tend to see people adding a lot of things to to that mix. And, and the first time round, you know, they don't really know what to do. So um, then on the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of other baking cure products out there that I saw had lots of different flavors and ingredients, but often would either be very expensive uh, or not contain nitrites. Now we spoke last time I was on how essential I think that is just for food safety and realistically, you know, to get a good quality bacon product, I I think you should be using a nitrite curing salt. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we just sort of put all that together and, and I think, um, you know, we've got a really good mix between a really good value product and also a product that works and straight up is going to give you a really, really nice flavor. So there's a bit of extra sugar in there. There's um, a few different um, dried uh, vegetables, uh, like, you know, a little bit of garlic and don't want to give away too many secrets, actually a little bit of onion powder in there. So, okay. you know, there's some, there's a few little savory tones and, um, and obviously the minimum curing requirements, but 
all in all, it it should be an extremely pleasant experience every you know first time and and every time with with our cure. That's what we're aiming for. Yeah, well, I've I've seen some of the photos of the bacon that you've turned out at home at at your own place there, and man, it that just looks sensational. Absolutely amazing stuff. Oh, thanks, dude. Oh, mate, and and I tell you what, like the uh, the amount of bacon photos that I'm getting tagged in now because you know we're we're selling a bacon cure. Uh, it just makes me so happy to see so many people going out there and having a crack. And you know, the universal comment is, um, you know, whether it's whether it's my bacon cure or anyone else doing uh, home cured bacon at home, even with their own stuff, but. Most of, most of the time when people have their first crack at making bacon at home, they, they're like, yeah, we're never going back to supermarket bacon. Yeah. Again. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. One, of, one of my favorite things to do other than slicing it just for having like eggs and eggs mm. and bacon on toast is I actually just, um, I freeze it into like little cubes, like little sort of, you know, inch by yep. inch cubes. And then I um, use them in, in meals that wouldn't otherwise normally have bacon and just dice it up. And just use it almost like a seasoning, so the bacon becomes yeah. like a seasoning rather than the actual meat of the meal. Yeah, and it's um, it it's amazing just the different uses that you can add it to. You know, um, one of my favorites is uh, my wife makes a vegetarian chili, so I fix it by chopping up some of this bacon and throwing some yes. of that bacon in. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just delicious. It just adds that that smoky bacony flavor to everything. Yeah, well, I mean, I love actually um, one little tip is when you first slice it and you make that first slice, you will usually have the very sort of smoky, you know, sort of crispy end bit um, before you start to slice into the nice, you know, fresh slices of bacon. Never throw that away. I always cube that up. And uh, and if I'm ever doing something like, you know, cooking some mushrooms or um, you know, starting off to saute some vegetables or anything like that. Um, instead of putting butter or oil in, in your pan, um, you can just throw a handful of those little bacon, you know, like they're almost little lardons really, and just render the bacon fat down, take, take it out and you can add it back in later. You can do whatever you want with it. You can just have it as a snack, but all that rendered bacon fat will just make whatever you cook in that pan next taste absolutely unbelievable. So. Yeah, and yeah, no. I love bacon. <laughs> oh, so good, so good. You just yeah. actually um, reminded me of something that my father-in-law used to do. I, I remember going over to visit him and he decided that he was going to make breakfast for us all one day and he would actually melt butter in the pan first and then put the bacon in the pan to cook the bacon. So he had bacon cooked in butter. Mm. Then, then they'd pour the grease off of that and put that in a can un- under the sink because it was cold enough in Oregon that they you could keep lard under the sink just in a can. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and they just sort of would just recycle that grease and that lard um, wow. all the way through. But yeah, butter butter fried bacon that was yeah. uh, that was something else. Well, I look. I mean, normally I I don't even add oil to the pan if I'm cooking bacon, if it's a cold pan, um, because if you just gently heat up the pan, generally the bacon has enough fat in it that it should render out as it's heating up. You know, a little bit of fat will start to render out and you just cook it in its own fat. But if you've got a hot pan, yeah, throw a bit of butter in there because if you just throw cold bacon onto a hot pan, you burn the outside and, um, you know, don't really cook the inside very well. The That's fat doesn't stick render down. And tear but and- yeah. But if you've got a bit of, a bit of oil and, and fat and grease in there from, a, from some butter, yeah, that sounds bloody good. 
Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> seeing as we're talking about bacon, it, it it does bring up the the question of pork, and I've been reading about mm. this um about this thing, Australia's pork problem, and the claim that ninety five percent of pork in Australia is imported. What is is there any kind of truth to that? Like, what's where's that coming from? I don't. Yeah, I mean, it is very high. It is very high, and yes, a lot of pork is imported into Australia. There's still a reasonable amount of locally produced pork, um, but where we're one of the top five, you know, beef uh, producers in the world, and the top two lamb producers in the world, uh, you know, we're not even we're not even close to. Um, I think we're about twenty fifth or thirtieth or something for pork production. So. The reality is, is we're just actually not um, farming all that much pork compared to the other proteins here in Australia. Um, and that comes down to the fact that um, our pork production compared to the other the other livestock enterprises, it's just not that profitable. Um, pork production in uh, uh, particularly in Europe and the North Americas is heavily subsidised. So the oh. governments, yeah. So the, the American government and a lot of the um, uh, European governments actually pay their pork farmers to be pork farmers to to maintain consistency of supply and production, uh, and and maintain profitability because their internal demand is, is is so high. So you know, pork's only our third most consumed protein in Australia, uh, behind. Um, chicken and beef it's a little bit ahead of lamb um but that's interesting well you, you got to think about it, ben like there's so much stuff with pork in it that you don't think about on a daily basis like all the deli meats you know mm. how many ham sandwiches get eaten a day you know? <laughs> yeah. um, uh you know things like uh yeah salamis and um bacon you know uh the pork's diverse. Like I, I, I'm like you. I think when I think pork, I think of like a pork chop. But yeah, yeah. Um, there's so many other pork products consumed. You know that that, that still fall under that category of pork. So that um, those um those subsidies that that you're referring to in the states and in Europe about pork is that because mm. like is there is there a particular reason for that? Like does it does it take less square meters of pasturage to to grow a pig than it does to to grow a cow? Is it something like that? Well, pork production is um, an intensive operation and it's really interesting that you bring that up. So generally um, there is some free range pork uh, produced, uh, particularly in Australia where uh, the consumer is quite concerned about the ethical responsibility of the um, producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but mainly, yeah, pork production is um, quite space conservative. You know, a lot of it's done in barns, particularly if they're not a breed like a Berkshire um, you know, the, the pink skinned, um, pigs have to be kept undercover. Um, so if a pig's not hairy, like your, your general sort of stereotypical pink pig, um, they actually get sunburnt. So that, yeah, yeah. So, so most of your, um, free range and, and, uh, uh, breeds that t- still graze outdoors and spend a lot of time out in the pasture, et cetera, or spend most of their time outside. Uh, they're generally hairy breeds like like Berkshires. Um, but the main reason why um, uh, the, the hairless pigs are preferable is because uh, if they don't have hair, then they've got good skin for pork rind. Mm. So I don't know if you've ever seen skin from a Berkshire pig. 
but it's full of hair follicles. Mm, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's not, you know, the, the, for, for consumer demand, that they'd that, that either have fine hairs or no hairs. Uh, so, you know, um, majority of, of pigs are, um, have to be kept indoors. That would also so, solve a particularly manual stage of the processing of the, of the pig as well. Cause I, I grew mm-hmm. up on a farm and we used to, uh, raise and, and kill and, uh, and, and eat our own pigs. And part of that step was after you'd, um, cleaned the, in, uh, sorry, before you cleaned the insides of the, of the beast. So just immediately after you've killed it, we'd have a big old clawfoot bath with a fire lit underneath it. And we'd sort of blanch the, blanch the whole carcass of the pig yeah. and then have to scrape the the hair off and sort of scrape yep. off the first layer of skin and mm-hmm. given given that pigs are all in different sort of shapes and sizes you wouldn't be able to do that mechanically so i guess by going with the hairless pigs yeah. you're saving a whole lot of man hours sorry people hours mm. in um in the processing of those pigs yep exactly and um and so you know one thing we do very well in australia and one i guess quote unquote natural resource that we have a lot of is space and lower land cost. So the efficiencies that we have in our beef and sheep production models are generally based on low cost land and having lots of it. So uh, you have efficiencies of uh, built into that low input systems um, with higher carrying capacities. And, you know, when it comes to pigs, you know, one square meter of um, piggery space in Australia looks exactly the same as one square meter of piggery space any anywhere else in the world so um where you have issues with like um beef production in in a lot of northern europe where you know high population density not a lot of available land and acreage uh, you don't really have the same problem with pigs because they're you know, quite space conservative and they generally eat a lot of um you know grain and hay and silage and it's all conserved fodder that can be grown elsewhere and then bought in and fed to the pigs so yeah, like, um, uh, you know, they also, like generally North America, Canada, um, you know, most of Europe, pork is a much bigger and more important component of their diet as well for them. So, you know, a lot of European countries get very, very worried about um, relying on imported products. In Australia, we've not been too worried about you know, importing a lot of pork over the years. It's not been a, a big priority for our government because we've got other other farming enterprises that we support a lot better. But a lot of these European countries, they they never want to lose their ability to produce their own pork. Um, you know, something like coronavirus comes along, shuts borders, etc. cetera. Um, you, you, all of a sudden, you, you either can't get uh, supply from those other countries or they become unprofitable. Uh, sorry, if really expensive. So, so therefore they want to have their own base of productions and therefore the government actually heavily subsidizes their operations to make them quite profitable. But what it also means is generally there's an excess of pork production to meet their country's needs. So, uh, it gets exported to places like Australia where we've got a demand for cheap pork. So it's not like our, our fruit and vegetable situation where we, where we export all our good stuff and then we import cheap stuff from um, from overseas. That's that, that's not what's mm. happening with pork. Is that what you're saying? Oh, we do export a little bit of pork, but a lot of it's in processed goods. So you know, small goods and things like that. But actual, um, you know, fresh cuts of pork, we export basically none of it. 
Um, a lot of what in a lot of what comes into Australia as well is also, you know, processed stuff. So we're talking a lot of the ham that comes in, um, a lot of the small goods, sausages, you know, all sorts of things like that. A lot of that actually comes in uh, from overseas or or just bulk um, meat for making those products. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Now, you mentioned that um, that other countries such as the US and the, the, the many countries that make up Europe, that pork is a lot more important to them culturally and to their diet that, than it is here in Australia. One of the things that, that often pops up as a, as a topic regarding barbecue here in Australia is the size of the pork ribs and the effects that, that has on the 3-2-1 method. Can you, can you talk to that a bit? So, yeah, exactly, mate. Um, basically, it comes down to the, to the kill weight of the pig and therefore the size of, of the cuts. So in Australia, um, we've got uh, a different emphasis on what's an important cut of pork. So historically, belly has been the most usable uh, almost one of the most usable cuts on on the pig for making bacon or for just cooking pork belly or uh, pork spare ribs um, that that are usually boneless spare ribs, which is yep. actually just strips of pork belly. So our butchers have been taught to basically skim um, straight down to the bone uh, to remove the ribs. The ribs traditionally have just been waste or you know, just grilled by European people on the barbie or whatever, you know, like whatever you want to do with them. But the, the emphasis has been on having a really full intact belly with minimum waste. Um, whereas in, in America, like they still go through heaps of belly, um, uh, but they've got a little bit more fat to, to work with because they're killing larger animals. So in Australia, we've got, um, two different classifications of pigs. You've got porkers and baconers. So baconers are usually larger <laughs> I love pigs. love those names. Yeah, yeah. So porkers are generally killed a bit smaller and they're for your fresh pork cuts of meat. Baconers are killed a bit bigger and they're for your, your bacon bellies and things like that. Um, now, we, we probably kill more porkers than baconers, so that's why there's not as many meaty ribs going around. The average... The average kill uh, carcass weight in Australia for a, for a slaughtered pig is about 73 kilos. And the average carcass weight for a pig slaughtered in the United States is 90 to 92 kilos. So wow. you're talking about a 20%, you know, size difference. They're killing their pigs 20% bigger. Um, some of that's just because they, they want bigger pigs and bigger cuts and, you know, um, you know, for us, our, our porkers, we, we kill them a bit smaller because, you know, no one wants to eat. Um, well, I do, but I mean, the average Tuesday night, you don't want to be eating a 400 gram pork chop. You know, most people want something that's more, you know, uh, cook a single pork chop, you know, 250, 300 grams. That's probably enough. So same with why we, we kill yearling beef. So we, we actually kill a lot of these cattle or slaughter a lot of these cattle quite young, you know, for those, for those smaller size cuts of meat where we sort of, value tenderness and, and, uh, you know, size on a plate more than the, um, overall yield of the animal. So, yeah, but I mean, you know, you've got a lot of, a lot of, um, producers like, um, you know, the Borrowdale free range guys, like they, they're really tapping into a market with, um, you know, their, their pork ribs, their, um, uh, butchering and packaging those up 
as really, really like meaty pork ribs because they yeah. they they know what their target market is. They're not having trouble selling them anymore. Um, their pigs are big and they're taking them through to the point where they can still have quite a lot of meat on those pork ribs and then, you know, still have useful belly meat as well. But, you know, you, you don't get them for, you know, cheap supermarket rib prices. You, you pay for, you know, the quality that you get. Um, but I remember even a couple of years ago, mate, there wasn't any of that sort of product even out there. Um, it's, it's good to see that you can buy something that's in like a back seal bag ready to go. And you've got yourself some meaty pork ribs pretty much, you know, straight away. I remember the first time I ever tried to cook pork ribs, I went to Coles and just grabbed some pork ribs off the rack at Coles. Oh, this is five years ago before butchers sort of started cutting for low and slow. And man, they just turned out just black boot leather because I tried to do the three, two, one on them. Yeah. And they, they just didn't have the meat. They didn't yeah. have the meat. And I remember in, and I remember sitting there trying to eat them, just going, why do the Americans love this? I, I don't get it. I don't see yep. it. Um, so, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Now that, um, that, that extra 20% kill weight that you're talking about, the 70 kilos versus the 90 kilos, mm. um, f- for the American viewers and listeners, that's a difference of about 40 pounds. Does that come down to diet a, or age or a mix of the both? Uh, mostly just age, Ben. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, they would be using, you know, similar finishing practices to get the pigs to a bigger size. Um, but that's just what, you know, that that's what the suppliers are, be, are specifying. They want the pigs to weigh because, you know, when they portion it up and cut it up into whatever they're going to use it for, they want uh, larger, larger muscles basically. So the interesting thing is as well is like that's carcass weight, right? So if you're, you're 73 kilos for an Australian pig, you might only yield uh, say 40 kilos of, of meat because, um, you know, a lot of that is bone and unusable um, product. So when you're adding 20 kilos to your 73 kilos, you're probably not adding much more bone. Like these are full size, fully grown pigs. So you're actually talking about adding 20 kilos on top of the 40 kilo meat yield off of a 70 kilo pig. So you're actually almost talking about a 50% meat yield increase. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so that's these huge. Are, these are much, much bigger pieces of meat, like your, your average chop or, or whatever. And, and once again, this is also average, right? So it, you know, they will have people that will be killing them as porkers, like as smaller pigs as well to meet specific boutique markets. But, you know, when you, when they're the second largest pork producer in the world, like averages, averages mean that they're killing some pretty big pigs there. Got a project you'd like to work on with the SHC team? Shoot Ben an email on ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. Alrighty, Tom, in this segment, um, I thought we might move on to lamb. So we've, we spoke about beef in the last episode. We've just covered pork. Um, Australia is, is often referred to as the country born on the sheep's back. So, um, and lamb is what we've used to set the Australian barbecue competition scene apart from others. What can you tell us about the ag science behind lamb in Australia? Yeah. So that's a really interesting one to start uh, with Ben, because when it was born off the uh, off the sheep's back, the um, the main reason for for sheep production in in Australia was wool. Um, 
we didn't kill a lot of lambs. Like they ate lambs because, you know, if, if you're farming, you'd be eating what you're farming or what's, what's locally able to be supplied and sheep were plenty. So, you know, you could spare a couple to, to get some protein, but, but historically, um, wool production was, was king. Um, the advent of, um, uh, synthetic fibers and increase in things like cotton production worldwide just means that wool as a fiber source just isn't as essential as it was, you know, 150 years ago when all the pastoral country was getting cleared and, you know, wool production in Australia was massive because wool was the most used fiber or one of the most used fibers, but now it's seen as almost as a luxury good. So um, these days wool is actually a pretty tough game. So, you know, statistics will show that only about one in every 15 years does a farmer make money off of wool production. Really? Yeah, because prices fluctuate, droughts, um, you know, uh, when you you get a lot of wool and uh, you have a good year, uh, the prices are generally low because the market can be flooded and just supply and demand. We still have a lot of sheep. Uh, and the demand for wool is not increasing. So uh, a lot of a lot of you know probably in the last twenty to thirty years in particular, a lot of the um, the sheep producers in Australia have have looked towards meat production. So um, lamb, actually growing lamb for uh, for meat is uh, you know generally something that every wool producer is doing now. Uh, as well as sort of replacing their their merino ewes, so or sorry, whatever breed um, they're going with. But um, you know, at the end of the day, when you when you look at um, herd numbers in in a sheep farm, will try and stay fairly consistent from year to year. So uh, when generally you're, you're dealing with mainly um, uh, ewes, so female sheep. Uh, and you're going to try and have them lamb down at least once a year or once a year, either spring or autumn. And generally um, a ewe's lifespan will be anywhere sort of from, you know, three to seven years, depending on how she's going, what sort of wool yield it's getting or all the health of the sheep. Um, so some of the offspring of that, of those ewes will be just replacing ewes that are either being, um, you know, killed or, or have um, you know reached the the point of of expiry in their in their life, and uh, and then there's a lot of excess lambs. So the idea is that then that goes into like a, a finishing operation for meat production. So a lot of the time when it was you know historically just um, uh, sheep for wool, now it's generally fat lambs, but with um, wool as as a consistent sort of stable income that uh, that they can keep going with. Okay, so these so these farmers that are sort of diversifying their 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 product range, are they using the same breeds of lamb, or are they using different types for the for the wool and the meat? Um, yeah, like it, it's pretty variable, Ben. So uh, merinos are still really um, uh, popular. They uh, give excellent wool quality. They've got good lambing ability and uh, they're pretty tough as well. So they grow in a diverse range of environments. Some operations are just not worrying about wool at all anymore. Uh, They're just worried about 
um, fat lambs and, uh, and, um, you know, uh, meat production. So you can go to, um, something like a, like a dorper lamb and they actually shed their wool. So, um, Oh, that's convenient. Bonus <laughs> of that. Don't have to shear them. Yeah. And just generally you're just, uh, keeping the, um, you're just keeping the ewes and uh, the breeding sheep uh, ticking along and alive and healthy so that you've got good, um, uh, good impregnation rates. So, you know, you need a, you need a healthy ewe to sort of guarantee that she's going to conceive. And then she needs to be healthy to give milk to the young lamb. Uh, So, you know, uh, if you don't have to worry about um, wool production or shearing or whatever, you can just, keep them moving around constantly onto the best feed source possible uh, to keep them healthy throughout the year and uh, give you your maximum um, potential for, for lambing. Yeah, right. That's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I did come across just a little while ago was Motanai lamb. I don't know if you've heard of that group. They're out of um, mm. Western Australia. They're producing lamb at the moment that's getting marbling scores like Angus beef. They're getting marbling scores of three, four, five. Lamb is not typically a meat that we associate with a marbling score. So how how do you think that they're achieving that? Is that is that feed? Is it breed? Is it both? I think um, I had a bit of a look into them, Ben, and I think it's um, it's very it seems to be very boutique and it's impressive. So they're they're integrating themselves with the local horticultural industry and using a lot of um, leftover uh, byproducts like wastage from carrot farms and um olive oil production so they're actually like um feeding a lot of like um carrot wastage and and olive husks and and things like that and you know um uh the excess um olives like the flesh after they've been pressed for oil and things like that so they're they're putting very very high quality um uh products into the feed base for these sheep so some of it's nutrition um i don't i couldn't actually work out what breed of sheep they were i'd i'd assume they're probably like crossbred ewes um and uh yeah they're just i mean they sort of described themselves a bit as the angus of um of the uh, sorry the wagyu of the sheep world um i i I didn't think that it looked like cheap lamb ben it looked like it cost probably what it what it's worth which is um quite a bit but they're putting a lot into these animals to, to, you know, build up that fat really quickly. So the thing with marbling, right. And it's the same you see in beef. So if you ever buy yearling beef, you're never going to be buying, you know, much more than probably about a marble score two or three in yearling beef, because, you know, the first year in same with sheep, they're getting to a certain size in their body structure and then they start to deposit a lot of fat, whether it be, you know, uh, intramuscular fat or subcutaneous fat or whatever that, that when they start to actually put on, um, uh, you know, that, that marbling is later in their lifespan. So, you know, your full blood way, you Japanese, uh, cattle there, uh, you know, with, with ridiculous marble scores, they're not getting killed till they're about three or four years old. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they might spend like 500, 600 days on a, on a heavy grain ration. So it's a really long period of time. Now the problem with lamb in Australia for, um, a lamb to be classified as lamb and not mutton or, 
or um, you know, sheep or, or whatever, for it to be lamb, it has to um, still have its milk teeth. So lambs are not classified as lambs anymore when they lose their baby teeth and the first incisor tooth is cut through the gum. Okay. Yep. And that usually happens between 10 to 14 months of age. So lamb is specifically a very young sheep but it can be defined specifically by, um, you know, an, an actual uh, biological uh, indicator, which is, you know, those teeth cutting through. So, for example, if you send your sheep to the sale yards and you've got a couple that have, um, you know, cut their teeth or whatever, uh, the process is going to dock you. That, that lamb instantly, it might still have theoretically the same quality parameters and the same tenderness and, the, and everything as the rest of the sheep in that mob but it's cut its teeth. It's probably worth about 50 bucks less a head. Wow. Because they just draw the line somewhere and that's where the line is drawn. So do so, they actually, do they like open the sheep's mouth and inspect those teeth before they buy it? Or is it something that they only realize after they've killed and processed the sheep? Uh, they, they can, if they uh, suspect that they're a little bit big, uh, they'll look straight there and then uh, at the sale yards. Um, but uh, generally what will happen is um, uh, the actual uh, seller to the processor will get docked. So um, if you're getting the, uh, so, you know, they'll actually uh, process the carcass, it'll be hanging up there and meat inspectors will actually come along. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, you know, on the outside of the fat of a lamb carcass, there's like a, the uh, a pink marking, like yeah, a stamp. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So a meat inspector puts that on when he's checked the teeth. Oh, interesting. So you don't get that pink marking on your lamb. Uh, it's not lamb. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's quite heavily regulated. And so that, I mean, look, uh, just by the nature of the beast, like lamb is, it has quite a lot of fat content in, uh, in the flesh. Uh, and in and around the muscles, but it doesn't have a lot of intramuscular fat like within mm. the muscle. But if you if you actually take that lamb and give it some age and put it on a grain finished diet for you know another twelve months, I bet you could end up with some sort of pretty impressive marbling scores. But um, they don't score lamb carcasses on marbling at all, um, and it wouldn't be considered lamb. So <laughs> you'd be paying all this money and spending all this time fattening up this sheep and having something that's probably a pretty amazing piece of meat at the end of it. And you'd have to market it extremely, extremely carefully because um, you couldn't actually call it lamb under Australian meat standards. Interesting. Unless you mm. made, unless you made the word lamb part of the branding, like McDonald's sells hundred percent Australian beef. And if you research them, that's the actual name of the brand is hundred percent Australian beef. There you go. Doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that it's 100% Australian beef. The other thing is as well, and I look, I can't actually um, say this with any authority. And and oh, uh, we're 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 I, purely speculating at this stage. I, I about don't the branding, know about these Moss and I guys, but um, you know, you, you, that if you're just selling to restaurants or suppliers or whatever, and you're doing your own home processing and etc. like that. Um, you can call it whatever you want uh, at the end of the day. Like, for example, I know um, 
uh, um, had a fair bit to do with um, uh, Mayura Station, uh, so full blood Wagyu cattle based here in South Australia. Um, so they don't generally get uh, the uh, MSA gradings, or they don't market their beef on on MSA gradings. It all still gets MSA graded graded and checked, but they do their own internal processing, and they have their own classifications. So um, they have silver, gold, and platinum label Wagyu. Um, so they have their own classifications and and market their own classifications of their beef quality, rather than leaving it up to um, uh, to MSA. So, you know, if you've got a boutique brand and you're supplying something quite unique to the market, um, yeah, you can you could probably market it and differentiate it however you wanted. But yeah, the reason why there isn't, you know, to, to sort of sum up what we were talking about before, the reason why there isn't a lot of marbling or emphasis on marble score in sheep is it's just it's not something that's being bred for and it's not really realistic in terms of the um the actual animal production system you're listening to the internationally awarded smoking hot confessions podcast with massive barbecue nerd ben arnett all right, so now it's segment three, which is our lesson part of the of the episode. And given that you have just released your your bacon rub, and we've talked about your incredible uh, photographs of the bacon that you're producing, mm. I thought it might be good if you give us a bit of a rundown on on how you like to make your bacon. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, Ben. Um, so we touched on it a little bit before, like uh, our our cure is a, a dry cure, and we go for a hot smoke at the end of it. So really, all you need is is um, your curing product. Uh, so uh, whether that's your own mix or uh, ours is called bulletproof. So it's basically ready to go out of the jar. Uh, you need your pork. If you want to do streaky bacon, you use pork belly. Uh, if you want to do shortcut bacon, you use loin. Um, and if you've got a big enough bag, you can just get a whole side of pork and do a full rash of bacon. But I've never had a vac seal bag or a fridge that's been big enough for that yet. So I usually just do a small piece at a time. But um, tip number one would be do yourself a favor and pick the right piece of pork. Uh, so you want a nice thick belly, um, with a good mix of, uh, meat to fat ratio. Now going to Woolies or Coles and, and getting some pork belly that's designed for a pork belly roast is not a good idea. They're usually quite thin, quite small pieces. Talk to your butcher and say to, to them, I'm after a piece of pork belly that I want to make bacon out of because they'll cut you a nice section that's hopefully quite thick and uniform in size that you can use. So pick a nice piece of belly. I generally take the rind off or get the butcher to remove the rind first. I was going to ask about that. Are you skin on or skin off? Yeah, look, I'm a rind off guy because I don't, I don't think it ever kind of cooks that well as bacon slices. Don't get me wrong. I love myself some pork crackle. Um, but I just don't really like the rind on my bacon. And if I'm going to trim it off anyway, I'd rather trim it off before I smoke it. Um, because if I smoke the rind and then just pull the rind off, I've pulled away all that smoke flavor. I've pulled away all the, all the stuff from the dry cure that I've, you know, spent time putting on there. So I like to start off with a rind off piece of bacon, but you know what? It's your bacon. Do what you want. I know so many people that, uh, think that I'm crazy taking the rind off and you know, uh, if you want to leave it on there, um, yeah, no dramas at all. So pick a good piece of pork belly. Um, and then it's quite as simple as, uh, you know, getting the rub, weighing your piece of pork belly, 
Um, we've got a set application rate. So it goes on there um, at 75 grams per kilo for our cure. Uh, but generally for, uh, um, you know, making your own baking cure, you just need some minimums. So it's usually about um, uh, half a teaspoon of curing salt and then uh, 26 grams of salt and 10 grams of sugar. That's kind of the minimum cure quantities per kilo of, of the basic cure ingredients, but that's not going to make all that good of bacon. Like it'll, it'll cure your bacon, but generally it's going to lack some flavor. So that's why ours is about 75 grams per kilo. Cause we've got enough of an, and a good mix of, of different ingredients in there to get some really nice tasting bacon. But you just apply your dry cure, put it in a bag. Um, Vaxil I find just does a really nice job of keeping everything neat and covering the belly evenly. Um, but you can do it in a snap lock bag as well. And then it just goes in the fridge for at least five days um, uh, or a little bit longer, just, you know, follow the directions of the cure, but it all comes down to the thickness of the, of the piece of pork and, and how long it's going to take to cure. So I think an old rule of thumb is about half an inch a day for every half an inch of, um, or so 10 millimeters of, um, uh, of pork. Um, once it's cured, uh, take it out of the bag, give it a good wash off. And then to get your best, F, best results smoking it, you want to dry the skin. So, uh, you don't need to dry it with salt or anything like that. After you've washed it, just dry it off with a paper towel and then just put it in your fridge. So refrigerators naturally dehydrate, um, just through the, the function of how refrigeration works. So they actually remove moisture from things. Uh, so if you just keep it uncovered in, in the fridge for 24 hours uh, and then straight into your smoker, that'd be perfect. Uh, and then, yeah, just smoke it, hot smoking. Um, another tip number two, the, if you want more smoke, smoke it at a lower temperature and then it'll take longer to get to that 145 internal. So if you smoke it at, say, 200 Fahrenheit, uh, it'd probably take about three, four hours to get to that 145. Uh, if, you, if you want a quick smoke and you don't want too intense of a smoky flavor, do it at, say, 250, and then it'll probably only take about an hour and a half to get to that 145. So you can play around with the flavors however you like it. Um, and then once it's smoked, generally like to let it just cool off. Um, I put it in the fridge straight away just so it stops that cooking process so it doesn't overcook. So once you've got it pasteurized, safe, ready to go, uh, and then take it out of the fridge the next day, slice it up and enjoy bacon heaven, basically. Yeah, so. beautiful. Sounds so good. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got a couple of quick questions. I've just taken some notes there. Yeah. Um, the 75 grams a kilo and you gave us a breakdown of the, um, of the cure versus salt versus mm -hmm. different, um, like how many grams per kilo, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Did you arrive at that just by trial and error or was that, um, like, is that like a set industry standard? Like you must have this much cure with this many oh, kilos to get that result. Yeah. So, um, basically I've used a couple of different resources, but there's a really good online uh, resource. It's literally, if you just Google bacon dry cure calculator, there's a, uh, there's a website where you just punch in your kilos of meat, uh, what country you're in because the nitrate levels slightly depend differently if you're in Europe or the USA. Interesting. Uh, for, yeah. Um, it's just a regulatory thing. It's a very small amount, but they do differ slightly. And then it just gives you your minimum 
uh, quantities of all those ingredients. So once you're at the minimum, uh, with things like salt and sugar, you can put more in if you want. So for example, uh, in our bulletproof, we've upped the sugar from 10 grams. There's more than 10 grams of sugar in there because if you don't have enough sugar in there, you don't, it's not that you're going to end up with sweet bacon by putting sugar in there. The sugar's there to balance the salt. Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you don't have, have at least a a good amount of sugar in there, you're going to end up with a product that tastes too salty. Um, it's not about putting less salt in the bacon. You, you need to put salt in there. And part of what makes bacon beautiful is that it's salty, but, um, you can end up with sometimes bacon that's too salty. So. Yeah, it tastes like salted pork that's been put in an old wooden <laughs> ship and sailed across from England to Australia yeah. in, the, in the in the time of the convicts. Yeah. 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 Um, and, okay, so my next question then was um, the Vax Seal versus the Snaplock. So when mm-hmm. I make it here at home, um, I use uh, Snaplock bags. Yep. And um, sometimes I use a dry cure. Sometimes I will actually pour a bottle of maple syrup in as well and just uh, yeah. turn it yep. into like a, like a kind of a hybrid mix there. Yeah. Um, so I always end up with, so say I am doing a dry mix in a snaplock bag. I find that the, that the moisture gets drawn out of the pork and it ends up almost like a self-marinating. Yeah, it does. Um, does it still do that in a, in a vac seal bag if there's yes. no room for it to draw that moisture out? Well, um, it makes room because um, as the water comes out of the pork, the pork shrinks. Okay. So, so there's the same volume of water the water's just changed locations. So osmosis, the uh, the saltiness on the exterior of the meat has caused the water to move to the outside. But basically as water moves to the outside of the pork and forms that sludge and that slurry, um, the pork belly will shrink a little bit. So yeah, I've, I've, I always actually like the vac seal specifically because that you guarantee that that um, curing sludge, like that beautiful, that beautiful bacon juices that you know forms after about half an hour and turns into a liquid of bacony goodness, it's always contacting the meat in a in a cryovac bag. So um, yeah, it, it it doesn't matter either way. The other thing is as well is I just tend to find if I vac seal it, uh, I never have a bag leak. Uh, yeah, I always I always double bag mine and then put it in a tray be, inside the fridge. <laughs> yeah, tip number three, double bag it, all right? <laughs> Definitely double bag it, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Cool. And so when you do vac seal it then, do, do you still flip it every day? Like, um, Yeah, what- it's, it's less important to do that. But generally through the curing process, you want to flip the belly on it end on end every 24 hours just just to make sure that it's even um evenly curing i suppose like um you know in a brine solution or in a, in a vac seal bag it's a little bit less important um but for peace of mind i still recommend that people do it and you know you can get up in the morning and see how your bacon's going and give it a flip and you know say say g'day uh, i always <laughs> like to do that <laughs> just just give a little rub each morning yeah, just give a little rub just be like, I'll see you in a few days <laughs> Nice man, um, I love it. I love it. Well, look, that's probably a good point now for you to uh, to, to to start giving some shout outs and um, and some, give some people some thanks and uh, and tell everybody where they can track down Smoky Pastures Barbecue on the internet. Yeah, thanks, Ben. So, Smoky Pastures Barbecue on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. 
Um, it's our channel name across all three and yeah, just, just stay tuned. Uh, just shout out to, uh, uh, my uh, best mate in, and uh, teammate in bacon goodness, Nolsey. I forgot to give him a plug last time I was on. Uh, but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, other than that, nah, all good. And and thanks for the opportunity to come on again, Ben. It's it's really good fun, mate. So cheers. You're welcome, man. I, I appreciate having you on because I learn so much every time. You've got such such deep agricultural science knowledge. It's uh, it's it, it's great to be able to share that around. So, yeah, look, thank you uh, for, for coming on board the show again and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Cool. Thanks, Ben. See you, mate. And there you have it, family. That was Tom Dammon once again from Smoky Pastures Barbecue sharing some really interesting ag science knowledge with us. Now, I did say at the top of the show that we were going to get into chicken. We ran out of time to cover that today, so we might circle back to Tom again in, in, in another couple of weeks and get into some chicken talk there. So uh, how good does that bacon sound, though? I've got a giant bottle of his cure just in the cupboard there. My son's itching to get into that and start making some bacon, so I think we're going to have to aim for that next weekend. That sounds really good. Now, if you are looking in, into getting into making some bacon at home, do make sure you head over to uh, to Tom's website, to his Facebook page, to all that sort of stuff. Grab yourself some of their um, some of their rub. It's really good stuff. And also make sure you head over to our website and grab a copy of our ebook, The Bacon Manifesto. Um, that's got a, a how-to and it's got some delicious recipes that you can then use that fantastic homemade bacon for at the end. And it was even awarded first place in educational writing at the NBBQA Excellence Awards in 2020. So it's a really good read and there's some delicious stuff in there. So that's all the time we have for this afternoon. So thank you very much for watching. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions.